Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Welcome everybody to our next episode of Dirty Drinks. How are you today, Rick? I'm doing well, Sarah. Yourself? Not too bad. I am surviving in this time of Omicron. It's been a little crazy. Definitely been a change the last uh, 10 to 14 days here locally. I know other parts of the country were kind of hit a little earlier, but uh, it was our holiday present over the winter, uh, winter holidays, I think. It was. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to everybody, right? <laughs> <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. I, I, we were hoping we had another week to get through the holiday time, but uh, the virus had a different idea, I think. It waits for no man, right? <laughs> very, very true. <laughs> very true. <laughs> so what's on your mind today, Sarah? Well, in honor of our Omicron spike, we have a whole panel of special guests today to talk about what's going on. So I think we should start with introductions. Yeah, that's a great idea. Great idea. I'm just going to start going around um, uh, clockwise on my on my screen. So that may not be the same as your screen. So we have Priya Nori joining us from the East Coast. I'll let her introduce herself uh, to you all. Hi, Sarah and Rick. Um, Great to see you guys again. Thank you for having me on. Um, So I I'm representing the Bronx, New York. I'm at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Montefiore Health System. So uh, the Bronx is 1.4 million people in a city, a larger city of what, nine plus million people. And so um, we had the, I guess, benefit of uh, being one of the earlier places hit by Omicron and um, experiencing the very rapid transition from the tail end of Delta, right uh, around Thanksgiving or a little bit after to then a sudden um, exponential growth of Omicron. Um, And we, uh, that was our confirmation basically that this thing was here. And so where we are now is still at a very high and uncomfortable level but hopefully starting to plateau on account of, you know, holidays are over, travel's over, there's really nothing um, fun to do out there and people are hopefully hunkering down at home. Um, So where I deal mostly with the surge is in the outpatient therapeutic space and hopefully have uh, some more to share about that um, uh, during uh, today's uh, convo. So thanks for having me. Thanks, Priya. So I see Kelly Cockhut is next on my screen. Hey, thanks for having me back. And I'll keep it short because I've had the pleasure of being on before. So just as a reminder, I'm an infectious disease and critical care physician here at University of Nebraska Medical Center and one of our associate directors of infection control and hospital epidemiology. So have been writing hospital policies for all things COVID while taking care of COVID as an ID physician and also as an ICU doctor throughout the whole pandemic. And don't forget you are an adjunct uh, employee health uh, provider yes. as well. Yes. So, uh, so uh, employee health provider in the background, just in case <laughs> on your cell phone at all times with questions. 
<laughs> hey, at least it's not at two in the morning anymore like it was back in uh, the start of this whole thing when we had no clue what we were doing. Well, maybe we have more of a clue now. It's uh, interesting. But next on my screen is, uh, is Dan Johnson, who has not joined us yet on his own individual podcast. We, we have to get him on at some point in time to tell us his story and journey, going, uh, how he got to where he is today. But I'll let him introduce himself today. Hi, my name is Dr. Dan Johnson, and I would say, other than my wedding and the birth of my three children, being on Dirty Drinks is basically the highlight of my life. I, I've been waiting for this invitation, and uh, it's finally here, so I'm very excited to be here. Um, I am the Division Chief of Critical Care in the Department of Anesthesiology here at the University of Nebraska Med Center, and I am mostly an intensivist when I do my clinical work. I sometimes get the pleasure of going to the operating room to anesthetize people, but over the last 22 months, those days have been very few and far between. Um, honestly, my group sort of taps in and taps out whenever the pulmonary critical care medicine team tell us to. Um, so the, the initial spring surge of 2020, we were all in. Um, as the summer got better, they told us we've got this. And then of course the fall of 2020 happened and we tapped back in. Things got better after the vaccines, we thought, hey, awesome, like we're through this thing, we're gonna actually have normal life again. And then of course, more recently, Delta back in, and then we've been in, and so Omicron is here. And I actually happen to be on duty in the COVID ICU as we speak. I have a partner that covers the nights, so I'm free to do this, but um, I'm right in the thick of it right now, so I've got a pretty fresh perspective on it. Thanks, Dan. And for the record, this is not the first time we've invited him on the show. So uh, we're glad that he's joined us. Uh, we've been a bridesmaid to his work a few times, but uh, now he's on and, and we're happy to have him. And then lastly, going around clockwise, we have Richard Estep, who's another new uh, guest to our show who we're excited to have as well. And we'll have to get back on to do his own show when we get a chance. Hey, good evening, everyone. I'm Richard Estep, a paramedic working in uh, Boulder, Colorado, uh, and also uh, the clinical coordinator for a fairly busy um, hospital system. It's a new job to me prior to that. Uh, for six and a half years, I was a clinical chief of medicine for a paramedic service. Well, thank you so much, everybody, for joining us today. Um, I really think that we should just get right into it. Um, everybody knows that Omicron has been affecting our healthcare system. And we've seen an exponential increase in case rates all over the country. Um, but I am curious to know how this has affected uh, everybody on this call. So um, maybe starting with Priya, what have you guys seen um, over on the East Coast? Yeah, thank you. Um, so there was this really great article actually recently in the Atlantic by um, the gentleman, Ed Young, who uh, is very famous now at this point for his coverage of the pandemic, but he really nailed it. And I um, encourage your listeners to check out this article and we can uh, put it in the show notes. But essentially, while there's one narrative in the media that this is a milder version of the virus and that it won't really have the same impact as prior variants in terms of taxing the healthcare system and healthcare workers. And um, that's sure, that's one narrative, I guess. But actually, when you go beneath the surface, what's happening is that the cumulative burden on healthcare systems and healthcare workers 
um, with now what four or five different surges in, in some places has uh, puts us in a much worse position to get through this successfully. So, um, you know, where, where I am, we, we are at this uh, juncture where we need to open up surge units, but we don't have people to staff those units because of a tremendous amount of staff illness and then just departures over time. And that's not unique to us in New York by any means. I'm sure you're all experiencing it, but um, what that translates into, which is covered really nicely in this article is, um, well, the COVID patients and the non-COVID patients just get overall worse care and everyone suffers and no one is the victor in that, uh, that situation. So regardless of if they're coming in with COVID or happen to get COVID in the hospital or incidentally testing positive, even if they have uh, a, an MI and are found to have COVID, well, they have much fewer nurses. The ratio of staff to patient is is uh, not in their favor. And so everyone is gonna do poorly. Um, and I think that while ours is maybe a few weeks ahead uh, of the rest of the country, it's like we're all reading the same script here and I don't anticipate anything different um, for, for our colleagues throughout the country. Yeah, I'm curious. So, um, you know, sequencing takes a little bit of time, right? So you don't know when somebody tests positive that what variant they have. But I can tell you that uh, from what, uh, you know, what I saw in my roles here that the, almost to the day that we started seeing Omicron take over, you could feel it. You could tell that it was different. Um, it was clear that this was a massive change in what we'd seen for almost six months with Delta here locally. Did it feel the same for you? And there's the sense that, yes, there was this rapid spike, and then there's also perhaps a rapid fall off, or you guys are much further along in your Omicron spike. So is it a rapid up down or are you seeing a rapid up and then a taper off or what are you guys seeing that other places can kind of expect? Great question. So we, uh, like you said, Rick, we felt that very specific inflection point where we said, there's no way that in a, in a pretty heavily vaccinated population. So overall New York, all comers, all age groups is something like in the 70s of, of complete vaccine coverage. And this still means the two doses. Um, different parts of the city up and down, you know, where I am in the Bronx is only about 68% fully vaccinated. And that sounds awesome, right? That sounds great. But then when you consider that 30% of like many millions of people are unvaccinated, those are the folks that are really taxing the system right now. And um, so what we've seen is about since right after Thanksgiving, we saw just this like rocket-like uh, upswing in cases that there was no other explanation besides Omicron. In a heavily vaccinated, experienced population that had been through several months of Delta, as you said, that uh, did relatively fine through that surge in, in the Northeast, then to see this happening again, we knew that couldn't be Delta. So the, the information we were getting on the ground from local sequencing and institutions that, um, that are doing sequencing is that something smells different here. And um, we, we had a little brain trust in New York City and basically they, they all confirmed for each other um, the very rapid doubling time from like 
10% last week to 30 to 50, then to just everything. And that happened very, very quickly. So fast forward to now, like about, let's say, um, you know, a month later, uh, we are perhaps starting to see, I wouldn't say the downtrend, but we're perhaps starting to see uh, maybe a plateau, um, at least in our, in our, the data that I have from our system. Um, part of this is a delay from, from the weekend. Part of this is the fact that we've had to send out more tests than we used to before. And there's some delay in, in that reporting but it seems like we're at least maybe sitting at the top of the hill. And part of this, I think, is that there's just really no one left out there to infect. And we're going to achieve some degree of uh, just through a massive prevalence of new infections, there are going to be no victims left, I think. Um, and so we hope that we are now far enough out of the holiday season that we're going to maybe start to see things go down a little. Now, is that because no more victims or is that because it's just so darn hard to get a test these days? We shall see. Yeah, sounds like hopefully you guys have gotten through the worst of it. So I'm interested to talk to Dan and Kelly about where we're at at the moment, because obviously we are, I don't know, 10 to 14 days into um, our experience with this. And I'm sure that they felt it pretty quickly as well in what they're doing. They also have um, a lot of interactions with the nurses and the other staff in the ICU. So where are they at, you know, mentally and physically now that we're in the midst of another surge? Sure. Um, I want to start off with just a quick little factoid that I've, I've been saying through the whole pandemic, and I, I think it's impactful. I've been doing COVID critical care off and on for 22 months. I have never taken care of a critically ill COVID patient who was either, uh, every single one of my patients is either unvaxxed or immunocompromised, 100%, not 90%, not 80%. Now I know that that's not true for all intensivists, but I've taken care of a lot of COVID patients and everyone was either unvaccinated or immunocompromised. And so some of the narratives that are out there, even among healthcare professionals trying to claim that, you know, if you get vaccinated, you can still have this horrible, you know, breakthrough critical illness. I know it happens and it will happen more because the denominator with Omicron is so gigantic um, that we will have fully vaccinated people who are critically ill. But I've had a lot of patients and I haven't seen one yet. So just my public service announcement here is if you are not vaccinated yet, please, please, please go get vaccinated. Um, I would say on a positive side, I want to start with a positive. Uh, up in the units, one good thing is because we've had so many COVID patients, the nurses, the RTs, uh, the physicians, environmental services, everybody who's on the team is just more comfortable knowing what to do, knowing how to do PPE properly. I mean, it, it got really smooth with the uh, fall of 2020. People got good at it. I actually kind of envied how smoothly the nurses and RTs were getting in and out of their PPE because I wasn't quite there yet. I wasn't a, I wasn't a PPE ninja yet. Um, <laughs> this week, I felt I, that I had completed my self-actualization as a PPE ninja. And I was just, you know, streaming in and out of rooms. You know, last year, if somebody said like, oh, there's no RT, can you go make a vent change? I'd have a little bit of like, increased heart rate. Now it's just like, put your PPE on, 
go do it. You're vaccinated, you're boosted, you know, you're good. And so that is a positive. The level of anxiety in the ICUs is different than it was in 2020 and, and most of 2021. So that's good. Um, yesterday, you, you mentioned sort of that feel that something's coming. Yesterday, I made a phone call to Brian Bohr. Kelly, you would not approve. He was having family time and I interfered with family time. Um, and of course I hear like kids in the background, like I always do when I call him and he's not at work. And Brian Bohr is our section head for critical care in the division of pulmonary critical care. And I called him to say, Brian, you know how there've been those days during the pandemic where you're, you're at work, you're in the unit and you just feel this like energy. It's sort of a, not, not scary, but just like this negative surge coming. And he said, oh yeah. And it was, you know, we remember it with spring of 2020 when it was sort of like crickets up in that COVID unit. And then all of a sudden they were just filling beds left and right. We felt it in the fall of 2020 when we went from like, oh, we're doing okay. We're doing okay. And then the cases turned into the hospitalizations, which turned into the deaths. Um, there was just like a couple days there where you just knew it was coming. I told him yesterday in the unit, even though we have a lot of COVID patients already, it just had this feel like the ED was just streaming patients up to us. And sure enough, we increased our COVID patients from yesterday to today by 25%. And I, I didn't check the list tonight, uh, but that was as of 11 a.m. In 24 hours, we increased our COVID ICU patients by 25% in a hospital that's already very, very full. Um, the MICU today got converted from a mixed use unit from, it, it used to be half COVID, half not COVID. And the lead nurse came to me at about noon and said, oh, by the way, do you see all these patients leaving? Those are all the non-COVIDs. We're making room for all the COVID patients that are down in AED. So it, it turned out that that vibe yesterday was accurate, that we kind of knew something was coming. In terms of the day-to-day, -day, um, the biggest thing that I've noticed through the entire pandemic in terms of impact on patient care and staff is nurse-to-patient ratio and RT-to-patient ratio. So um, we actually, our hospital um, did a nice job about six months ago of hiring a ton of travelers. And so there was a period of time where our nurses were two to one again in the ICU. And um, it was really nice. And, you know, people disparage travelers. I have a whole new love for travelers. Like it was absolutely awesome to see our regular staff nurses go back to a two to one ratio because of these talented, young, brave people that can move across the country and fill roles and take care of anything that they throw, that we throw at them. Um, so we're back to three to one pretty much all the time, uh, despite all these travelers, uh, because we've got a lot of people who are out sick with COVID. So for all the nurses that we hired to be travelers, we have almost an equal number of nurses who are now out with COVID or quarantining. And Rick, I, I know I'm preaching to the choir here as the head of employee health, you know this better than anybody. Um, today was the first time I think that I've ever worked in an ICU at Nebraska Medicine where I literally couldn't find a respiratory therapist. I really needed to talk to the respiratory therapist because we had a kind of a complicated plan for recruitment of a lung. And then we were gonna drop the PEEP back down. And you know, you just have to have a conversation. You can't put that in an order, it doesn't work. Um, and I couldn't find them. I literally couldn't find them. They're, they're so good about being present. And I just realized they're so busy, they're so stretched, they're, they're just not here. So I put on my RT hat and went in the room and did what needed to be done without their help, which is how we've been behaving for, for the uh, Delta surge and this and all along, right? If, if the doctor can help, we should help. 
Um, a new thing for me, you know, I think Kelly has probably experienced this. Priya, you may have experienced this. I had never experienced the joy of having people try to decline medications that have been proven with good randomized control trials to benefit COVID patients and request medications that have been proven not to be beneficial. So I've kind of lucked out in that way. Um, I've basically had really nice patients and nice families, or if they aren't, if they're not liking the therapies I'm giving them, they're not speaking up. Well, today, this week that changed. <laughs> so I, I had my, I had my first real dose of people trying not to accept the medications that we know work. Uh, one of which is fully FDA approved others that have been very well vetted with excellent randomized controlled trials. And, you know, the EUAs that have been issued have been very appropriate. And so had to have some heart to hearts with some patients and families over the last few days. Um, and really overall, I would say the physicians I feel are doing okay. That's my impression. Um, we're, we're better staffed, I think, compared to the nurses and the respiratory therapists. We have a little bit deeper bench. Um, I think the nurse practitioners on our team are doing okay. Honestly, um, again, we've, we've spent the last year and a half really trying to deepen our bench, recognizing that we were basically running razor thin margin in terms of number of people available. Um, so that's sort of been my experience. Um, we've, we're doing okay. Uh, we definitely know there's a lot more Omicron patients coming to the ICU over the next week or two. And uh, we're, we're just getting ready to take care of them. Well, don't feel bad about your um, patient that refused treatment. We got our first hater on Twitter this week. Oh. So they're out there. It happens. Hey, Sarah, <laughs> Sarah, Sarah today or a couple of days ago, I asked one of our physicians who's like a social media guru, kind of like Kelly Cockett, uh, but it wasn't her. I asked, how do you delete Twitter from your phone? And he said, what do you mean? You push on it and then you just hit that delete. And I said, oh, it's that easy. And he was like, yeah, so I did. Yeah, but you still have your account. You didn't like disable it or log, you know, did you even log out before you did that or? I didn't. And then I checked my Gmail and what do I see? But tweets. Yep. That's the problem. <laughs> Oh, well, technology for guys our age is not quite so easy, is it? No. You can fix it. You can turn the notifications off and then you never have to know. It's all good. <laughs> Advanced future lessons. Kelly, I will come visit the guru and you can show me how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> she, she is the, uh, the uh, social media guru, isn't she? So, Richard, I'm just I'm curious. One thing I'm curious about here is is um, transporting patients and and going and getting sick patients and trying to find a place to take these patients. I assume that Denver's had a similar problem to other major metro areas in in the U.S., even rural areas. How how, how has that been for you? And and you know, has it made your job that much more stressful as opposed to having your normal routes of where to go and those kinds of things? Yeah, I would say that uh, so many hospitals are now on divert, which as EMS crews, we completely understand that. We see how hard everybody is working there. We see the, the lack of staffing primarily because, um, of course, Omicron is, is laying people low. Um, and we're experiencing some of that ourselves uh, as a service. So um, the problem is that the, the public keeps calling um, as they all want to do. And of course, as they have a right to do. Um, we're modifying our own treatments 
uh, in light of this. I mean, it's been a long time since I've performed an aerosolized procedure in the field. Um, something like uh, CPAP or nebulized medications, we try very hard not to um, not to administer those. Uh, and and of course, with the the governor implementing the new um, uh, crisis care standards, which came three days ago, um, we last had those in place in April of uh, 2020, I believe it was. And now those are back too, and that's going to change the way we deal, especially with out of hospital cardiac arrests. Um, we'll we'll no longer be transporting those patients who present in a systole or PA, some kind of non-shockable rhythm. Um, so yeah, it's it, it's made things both more complex and in some ways more simple at the same time. So you brought up a, a really good term, Richard, uh, crisis standards of care. I think we need to spend some time unpacking exactly what that means. So that way people understand what happens when we are put into crisis standards of care. Absolutely. And I know that the very term itself is, is inflammatory. I mean, it's, it's become a, a news headline pretty much everywhere throughout the state. Um, and the, the PDF of those, those standards has been posted. It's incredible how many people I think are reporting on it and are not actually reading them and thinking about what those, uh, those contents mean. But some of these things we've, we've already been doing. Um, and that's a key thing. In EMS, for example, with any suspicion of COVID, we're trying to restrict uh, attendees to just one where possible. So we reduce uh, our chance of exposure. If we absolutely do uh, have to manage an airway aggressively, we're much more likely to continue putting in a supraglottic like a king or an LMA uh, rather than endotracheally intubate. Um, so things of that nature we've been doing for a while because they're simply good sense. Um, and of course, I know there are going to be stories about the, the cardiac arrest change, but the truth is most medical professionals are aware. Um, patients that present in a non-shockable rhythm have a traditionally very poor chance of being successfully resuscitated anyway. Um, when we're not in the middle of a pandemic, we do still throw the book at those patients in terms of treatment um, because we do want to look their loved ones in the eye and say we did absolutely everything possible. Uh, so we will work them for normally anyway, 30 minutes, sometimes more, um, in an attempt to get them back. That is no longer possible, and those patients will no longer be transported because the hospitals simply don't have the resources, the capacity to deal with that anymore. I think that's a really powerful message for where things are at. And Kelly, I know you've done a lot locally here with crisis standards of care and trying to uh, figure out what we're doing uh, as far as caring for patients in the hospital and whatnot. And I'm interested in kind of your perspective on this. You know, it's, I think as a physician, I think anyone in healthcare, right? It's just, I don't even know that I have the right word. It is devastating and heartbreaking and it feels so wrong, but yet it is what we have to do. It is like a military triage. We have to try to ration care to the people we are most likely to save because we are reaching the point where you can't save everyone. And that doesn't mean just COVID, right? The cardiac arrest example is a perfect one. Same for us with you know, massive stroke or intracranial hemorrhages or other things that, you know, we have thrown everything at, at times, right? Or other transfers from acute access hospitals and critical, you know, rural locations or standalone emergency rooms where you just 
don't know that you can bring those patients in. And in a workforce that is already exhausted and emotionally and morally injured and depleted, bringing those crisis standards on and knowing that we are dropping our standard level of care for our organizations because we have nothing left to maintain our standards is really hard. And I don't think the public fully understands that. And actually, you know, even just personally, I was telling Dan earlier a little bit about this. Like I've been thinking a lot about this and thinking about our EMS colleagues after like looking at a pediatric ambulance earlier today. And my daughter, unfortunately, just developed um, new seizures and has had some prolonged ones and was having a brain MRI today. And I've been trying desperately to protect her because she had severe, prolonged, complex febrile seizures as an infant. So I do not want her to get sick because if she starts seizing and I can't break her seizures with medications at home, I don't know if an ambulance is going to come and I don't know if there's a place to bring her. And I've begged this child once in an ambulance myself already because we, I was there when there was an EMS staff shortage for another person. Like, I don't want to do that again, but I've been there but not everybody has the ability to work that system. Like I could do things myself as a physician to help her, but thinking about that as a parent and as a, what happens to our kids or our loved ones, you know, or someone who has a, you know, a respiratory arrest, a cardiac arrest happening at home and whether they're even going to be able to come in that beyond the standards we set in the hospital and stretching our staff even farther because we just can't stretch that far and be as good as we normally are. You know, it, it's just so hard to think about that and goes against the ethics we all have in medicine of what we want to do and why we went into these careers. Um, and I think, you know, we've, we've talked about having other crisis standards, right? Where you ration ventilators, who gets to be intubated? Who doesn't get that opportunity? Who doesn't get the opportunity and is told that we're going to withdraw your supportive cares because we need to give that ICU bed to someone else who has a better chance of surviving, but that patient is still awake and coherent with their family. And we're going to tell them, I'm sorry, but now we're going to move you to the conference room where you're going to stay until you die because there's nothing else I can do. Living in that is, I think, every healthcare worker's worst nightmare at least in my opinion. And I think that everyone I've talked to that has been the feeling in the hospital when we think about invoking crisis standards. And we are very close here to having to do that. Just to add to what Kelly's saying, um, on top of the really serious ethical dilemmas that we face with things like life support, um, for the first time during uh, since the start of the pandemic, we're also very short on medications. So all of these treatments that we have wonderful clinical trials data on now at this point, with the exception of like, you know, dexamethasone and remdesivir, I think virtually everything else is on shortage. Uh, so now we have at least three um, very successful antiviral drugs that can be used to keep millions of patients outside of the hospital. But the in actuality, the amount that each hospital or each state or jurisdiction gets is on the order of like a couple of thousand. And what um, folks just like us have to do on a daily basis is, is, is make 
decisions for the hospital system being like, okay, this patient is the most likely to die from COVID. And therefore they are going to get this potentially life-saving treatment rather than this other patient. And so who emerges to the top of that list is frequently the unvaccinated. And so um, this is not just a local decision, but federal guidance, NIH, all of these groups are reckoning with the fact that it's really the unvaccinated who are at highest risk for dying, who are um, overwhelming the healthcare system and therefore should be prioritized for this, these treatments. And so what, um, what uh, infectious diseases physicians in particular are having to do is say, well, you are you know, vaccinated and you have a bunch of medical problems, but, oh, I just got this referral for someone who is unvaccinated, maybe pregnant, and there are two lives at stake there. So I'm going to pick that person and I'm not going to pick you, even though you're 65 and have a host of medical problems. And there's no rule book for this. And we're having to do these things on the fly with no more information than, than the next guy. And it just feels like a four-letter word, if you know what I mean. And um, this is a very shared experience by all of us right now in healthcare. Rick, if you think about it, um, Nebraska, Western Iowa, let's throw Eastern Colorado into this. In, in a way, we already have a quiet crisis happening because we can't accept transfer patients. So when tertiary care centers, when the academic medical center for a 300 mile radius cannot accept transfer patients from small community hospitals, that creates quiet crises at all of those small community hospitals. And a lot of people in Nebraska are the type to sort of put their nose to the grindstone, do the best they can and not make a fuss. But what I'm hearing from people at small community hospitals is they've got nurse practitioners with critically ill people in emergency departments at hospitals with four beds who ought to be sent to Omaha or Lincoln, and they can't. Um, I spoke with an anti-vax parent recently to try to convince him to get vaccinated. And one of the arguments I made, well, I asked him, I said, what do you do for work? He said, I, I do logistics for a company. He said, okay, perfect, let's talk logistics. We have declined more transfers to our medical center in the last six months than we probably have in the previous 20 years combined. We don't say no. If a small community hospital, if a provider in need, if a physician in need is reaching out for a lifeline, the University of Nebraska Medical Center says, yes, send them. That is what we've always been about. We always, pretty much always say no now unless it's something like advanced heart failure and we happen to have beds in the CVICU where we can help somebody. But if it's a general medical critical care transfer, the answer is no. And so people are definitely dying in those small community hospitals that could live if they could make it to a higher level of care. Um, I think that in Omaha, the line between, you know, they call it contingency levels of care where we're not doing our normal stuff, you know, we're limiting the operating rooms. The line between contingency care and crisis of care we, is so, we're, we're getting so close. It's more of semantics at this point. Like, are we actually gonna say it like Colorado? Um, because we are really limiting a lot of things. We've, lim we've drastically limited the amount of ECMO that we'll do. And that's not because we don't have machines. 
it's because we don't have nurses and we can't have one-to-one nursing on more than a few ECMO patients. Um, on, you know, on, the, on a more personal note, I'll give you a, a little bit of a story from today. I had a family meeting today with the father of a young veteran. And he said, uh, he's totally maxed out on everything. Um, he's not thriving. And everybody knows it. The family knows it. And, you know, we're still trying. We're still giving him everything we got. But we had a family meeting. The dad said about the patient, because he's a veteran, he understands the concepts of triage. And he understands the concept of rationing. And he said he would want all the support to be taken away from him and given to someone else. And I will tell you that one of his colleagues and I had a conversation this fall and we sat in an ICU with two patients younger than myself and we had one ECMO circuit and we had to decide which one lived and which one didn't because only one of them was going to get the circuit and both of them were at the point where there was no other option left. And having that conversation and having to have those discussions with patients, with their families, and even just in the midst of the healthcare team, it is so hard. It is so hard to do that. It was actually one of the first conversations that we had multiple trainees and nurses and respiratory therapists. And if you would have asked me anytime within a week or two of it, my reaction would have been very much like dance. I couldn't talk about it because it was so horrible. But after that, after a whole bunch of people were crying on a floor and really not okay, the nurses came up and were so grateful to have heard the physicians finally break a little and not be okay with it, that it is something that they haven't seen. They haven't seen the vulnerability of the physicians coming in and saying, I'm not okay anymore. And doing this is not okay. And this is really hard. And honestly, it's having colleagues like that here and colleagues like Dan, that we know you can call each other. We talk to each other in the hall. People check in with each other. Dan checked in with me not too long ago. I mean, if I didn't have that at this organization right now, I don't think I could keep doing this job and certainly not be on the front line in an ICU, let alone all of the other infectious disease side where, you know, the number of times Rick and I have texted each other in the last two years, I mean, it could take its own cell service line, (laughs) but that is a difference. And that is one of the best points. I think in the worst possible moment is being able to talk about it and acknowledge it and share that burden instead of bringing it all home and trying to manage it by yourself. I'd like to add too that this is a it's a common experience. I talk to my friends across the the part a little further back east than uh, Priya in Great Britain, where I came from. And uh, you know, the time was that people were clapping for healthcare workers in the street at eight o'clock every evening. That is gone, and we're now seeing that just the duration of this um, of the pandemic is breaking our people. Um, never mind losing the joy of medicine and of patient care. We're seeing people hanging it up. I think and it's important not to allow what we're seeing to drive that desire to serve people away because it's so easy, especially looking at all of the misinformation, especially looking at some of the selfishness um, to think, why bother? You know, why do the frontline? Why are we doing this? If people don't care, why should I? And that to me is one of the more insidious threats that we're dealing with because it, it kind of strikes at the heart of our profession, our chosen vocation, 
and the cynicism will will sneak up on you in some some terrible ways if you're not not careful about it. Yeah, thank you all for sharing that. I think some of the information being passed around out there is that there's healthcare shortages because of vaccine mandates. I think it's the stories that you guys are relating right here and the moral injury that people are suffering that leads to this more, way more than any vaccine mandate. I know locally we lost very few people actually to the vaccine mandate compared to the number of people that have left healthcare altogether. Some of them extremely talented people, but this is just really tough and trying times. And I think to speak, if I can, just speaking to the media, you take what happened with Mayo Clinic with NBC this week right? Instead of celebrating that they lost the less than 1% of staff, the national news outlets picked up and said they fired 700 people or whatever the number was. They focused on the negative of the people who left or were fired because of vaccine mandates and not the number of dedicated people who jumped at it, went all in and are retained and are still sticking through on that front line. And that it's just the spin on the stories that are, it's just so hard. And even trying to talk about these surges now, you know, I feel like I'm crying wolf, right? Everyone's like, you keep saying it's going to be bad. I'm like, but it's been bad every time we've told you it's been bad. You just are willingly ignoring it or not understanding it. But it's not that we haven't been saying this. Every time the surges come, we have told people that others are going to die, that it's not going to work well. But nobody believes us anymore, I think. And that's really hard. And this this whole narrative of, you know, compared to the overall new diagnoses and new cases that a much smaller proportion are ending up in the hospital, like, okay, yeah, that that is true. But what they're not, the media is not covering really as effectively is what do the hospitals look like right now? What do the healthcare workers look like, given that this is not their first rodeo and that this is many times over cumulative, additive, synergistically bad in a, in a negative way. And that's what's not being addressed. And uh, it comes, I think, from a place of their own fear and denial and uh, perhaps some kind of insidious uh, uh, narrative underneath to try to keep control over uh, what's happening in the markets and what's happening politically and, and all of these things. It's like they all got the same instructions to try to shut this down, to, to make this seem like a, um, a, a much milder version than potentially it could be. And yeah, I mean, maybe we'll find that uh, this is mostly an upper airway disease and that it's not ultimately at the end of the day associated with, with the fatality rates. But when you add, when you compound that and when it's thousands and thousands of hundreds of thousands of people, yeah, it, 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 things are going to get really, really bad very quickly. And Priya, I'm, Priya, I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm actually an anesthesiologist intensivist, but I like to play one on social media and now radio apparently. Um, the decoupling between infection and hospitalization is yet to be seen in my part of the country because, you know, South Africa, the UK, we can look at their data, New York City, we can look at your data, but you have to remember you guys have pretty high vaccination rates. So what about, what about the many, many counties in Nebraska and Colorado where the vaccination rate is abysmal? Exactly. We, have no, we have no reason to believe that the decoupling between 
uh, Omicron's infection and hospitalization will mimic South Africa, UK, New York City. Exactly. Um, exactly. And in fact, Dan, ours in no way looks like the UK or South Africa or the Netherlands are all, uh, you know, minus South Africa, these Western European nations where they're heavily vaccinated and heavily boosted. And what we're feeling right now in New York City, especially in the outer boroughs of New York City, is a lot like what you guys are probably experiencing and going to experience, which is that we still have, you know, millions of unvaccinated individuals and they're getting really sick and they're going to go on to have chronic medical issues. You're going to have long COVID and this is going to stay with them for their entire, entire lives. And for lots, I mean, one, one thing we didn't really touch on here is these are people's second, third, sometimes fourth rounds of infection. And um, I can only imagine what the long-term effects of that are going to be. But we're seeing people who were infected with Delta, you know, uh, roll the dice, did not get vaccinated in between and getting reinfected with Omicron. And it's just like, you know, it's outrageous. It's this thing is just totally outside anybody's um, level to ability to predict. Uh, and it's, it's really, really scary. And then you, you take that kind of virus and you plant it on a heavily unvaccinated population. And it's just like, it's going to rip through. And that's what we're all seeing, I think. And we're seeing those Omicron breakthroughs very rapidly after some of our Delta cases. We re- we had kind of a later surge this fall. So we still have a bunch of Delta patients in the hospital. And we're now trying to trying to sort the difference between is it Delta or is it Omicron and having to rewrite our protocols to kind of deal with the donut hole of who's at risk to be reinfected and how do we take care of them and not get everybody else sick if they have Omicron. And I mean, we're just, again, struggling with that and already seeing it and trying to figure out how to test people, but not run out of tests <laughs> and how to make sure there's you know, engineering in place, we have floors that are entirely negative pressure, essentially, at our organization that we've built in. And it may not be perfect, but it's worked really darn well. And, you know, are we going to outstrip those again? And then we're on general floors, and we don't have those extra protections. And now maybe we don't catch that window of people where they get reinfected, because it doesn't take long. So, you know, we already have that, and it's only going to continue here. Yes, essentially a numbers game, right? So if you have a very severe disease that isn't very contagious, you might have some very sick people. But if you have a very contagious disease, even if it's not severe and you get huge numbers of those people infected, then that's going to be what overwhelms the health systems. And I think that's what we're seeing in places that are um, not having the vaccination rates that you, we have seen in, in what Western Europe's experience is, for example. So, um, yeah, uh, it certainly is a concern and things are still worsening here. I was just actually wondering about the other consequences that we're not really uh, seeing. For example, uh, how many uh, diagnostic screening procedures are no longer able to be carried out? How many um, early onset diabetes um, cases are we missing? I think that when we come to count the cost of this, uh, so much remains below the water. Uh, and I know the narrative has changed. Initially, people were skeptical in making the, the statement, how many people do you know who've actually gotten COVID? That's what I kept hearing over and over in the early days of this. That has now gone. 
And that narrative has changed to, all right, everybody I seem to know has COVID, but it's really not all that bad. And they're getting over it after two or three days without looking at the logistical, as Dr. Johnson said, um, impacts on the whole healthcare system and our society in general. So there's a hidden cost to this that has yet to be counted. And we don't know what long COVID is going to look like either yet, right? I mean, I, I, I don't know. Sorry to cut you off, uh, Dan, but I mean, people are having lasting symptoms now and we're, you know, months into their, their diagnosis. What, what happens down the road? I mean, I don't think we know that. Uh, and so big questions there. Go ahead, Dan. Well, there's also a lot of psychological effects that I never would have thought of. When, if, when I used to think about what a pandemic was like, I wouldn't think about a situation like this. I have a close family member who was booked for a very important surgery, but a surgery that according to the restrictions would be canceled. And so in the weeks leading up to this, and this was back during Delta, but we always knew there was a high risk that Omaha hospitals would have to restrict surgery again. And so weeks leading up to it, she just kept wondering, am I going to get this thing done? Like, I, I have to get this surgery. I, I've been like psychologically preparing myself for this surgery. And she barely got in and got it done. And I'm very thankful that she did. But all the downstream effects of the pandemic where, you know, restricting surgery is a necessary lever to pull. But that really impacts a lot of surgical patients negatively. And frankly, as an anesthesiologist, I work with surgeons every day. It's been very, very hard on surgeons to not get to do what they do. I mean, they love improving people's lives with operations and saving people's lives with operations. And what one person may call elective, another person may not. And uh, knowing where to draw that line, it's just been, it's been very stressful for operating room personnel in general, and especially patients and surgeons. And I think too, because Dan used that word, I know we're coming up on time, Sarah, but I think the idea of elective procedures and elective medical care is a um, dialogue that needs to change, right? Like a medically necessary thing may not be an emergency and it may not be urgent that it needs to happen, but there's all of this discussion about how COVID and wearing masks or isolation or quarantine rules are going to so negatively impact the economy. Well, what happens when all these people can't work or are disabled in the short term because they can't get their care? They're also causing issues and compounding that. And it's not just COVID patients. The idea that this is just a COVID problem is just so common. And then like, oh, it's elective procedures. It's not a big deal. Well, someone's elective procedure, you know, these are not necessarily procedures for vanity or cosmetic things, which I think mm -hmm. people may often think this may be that functional knee replacement, that elective cardiac valve replacement so that people can walk and function and do things right. There's more than just what I think the public tends to perceive when we say what these procedures are. And so I think just changing that discussion and dialogue on the public stage really is important to talk about those stories and to talk about that impact and the downstream effect of when you postpone surgeries, it's not like the, all those people are just able to live fully functional, great lives necessarily. That's not how this works. Yeah. And I'll just um, echo everything that everyone said and go back to the long COVID thing. Um, I haven't told very many people this yet, so you guys should feel really special, 
but I just found out that I have post COVID cardiac arrhythmia and I am otherwise healthy. I've never had any issues in my life. And, you know, what is that going to mean long-term for the healthcare system? All of these long COVID syndromes that we don't even know yet, you know, people are going to be in the system for this care for a long time and would have otherwise been healthy. And I think too, Sarah, when you even think about that, which I happen to know a little bit about, um, you know, you, your experience there and trying to get access to care, but it also reminds me of in general, that equity and access to care. And you take Nebraska, if you have post COVID syndrome in rural Nebraska, you don't have access to the specialists or the clinics or the multiple appointment capacities. If English is not your primary language, it is very hard to navigate our systems because they are not built to describe what can be perceived as very vague, ambiguous symptoms for some people. If you're not insured and you're trying to work and pay out of pocket, and then you have post COVID syndromes, you may not be able to afford the care and the repercussions on the equity and access to care alone just for post COVID are going to be profound throughout our communities and this country. And they already were profound when you look at disease burden and mortality. And I would add to that also, if I may, that um, there are going to be fewer providers around in all capacities at all levels, because there are so many tired and broken physicians, nurses, paramedics, you know, uh, whoever you care to name. I have a feeling that there will be a real staffing challenge once this is all mitigated. Well, thank you all. I don't know if uh, any of you have any last comments, but we certainly appreciate the open and frank discussion that we've had. Dan, did you have something you were going to say? I was just hoping you could cheer us up, Rick. I know. I was trying to think of something. Uh, um, uh, what can we say? Um, it's going to be 50 degrees tomorrow. Hey, and I earned my PPE ninja. Badge. You you did. You did get your PPE Ninja badge. Um, Kelly's getting better. She's coming back to work again soon. So that's that's a positive. Uh, Priya's uh, hospital situation sounds like it's maybe plateaued and getting uh, a little bit better. So yeah, um, that's great. I'll revisit with you guys. I'll let you know what to expect, uh, you know, in a few weeks. And I will hopefully be able to confirm for you relatively soon that there is light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, we certainly need that. I'd certainly be interested to hear what your experience is like, you know, you're going to start your peak and then start to trend down. What comes after that? Is it a rapid decline? Is it a slow decline? Is there, you know, what uh, stresses does that put on people and how quickly can you start to relax some of the augmented things that you've put in? Um, Because we're doing that. We're going the other direction right now. We're going back up on things that we uh, had done before. Um, but at some point you have to scale it back again, right? And, and what does that look like and how do you do it? We could have another whole discussion on that here in, in a month or so. Uh, and we'd love to have you guys all back on. Yeah, for sure. Hope to have some better news on all of those things in a couple more weeks. Um, we are kind of maybe just sitting right there on the top of the, the mountain I hope I don't want to um, bite my words later on, but um, let's hope it's like, you know, one of those awesome Six Flags roller coaster rides downhill 
and uh, we'll, we'll see each other on the other side. I saw something cool on uh, social media that said, we're just one more surge away from matching the Patagonia logo. <laughs> oh, can we just all start wearing those hats on these calls and said every Zoom, like you must show the Patagonia logo and be like, I'm here today. <laughs> like, the heck with the mood elevator. It just goes with the surge, right? They're completely tied together. <laughs> I will say that is one of the beautiful things that I will also echo has come out of this, right? I mean, Priya, we've been in the same fields for years and we have never met face to face, but now we've met more than once, <laughs> right? Via Zoom. So the, and just to be able to meet other people, you know, Richard, to be able to chat with you, even though, you know, geographically we won't have that ability. I don't really think prior to this pandemic, we in medicine, academic, non-academic, collaborated and communicated as much as we do now. And I think that is one of the positives that I hope we can carry with us is the ability to learn from each other and be honest about how things are going and to try to be better in whatever state it is where we finally feel like we have a little capacity to rebuild. Another positive, my resident on rounds yesterday said, I feel like I've gotten a lot better at managing ventilators lately. (laughs) (laughs) I said, said, you're right. You have. (laughs) We did joke that a lot of our trainees, can you imagine being a pulmonary critical care or just a critical care fellow or an ID fellow, right? Particularly going through all of your fellowship in a pandemic. Yeah. And lots of these people started as residents, right? They were (laughs) residents when they were applying surge number one, and then every year of their fellowship, some, some major surge. I have two interns right now, and I, I was talking to them about the pandemic as if they were like in the trenches in April 2020. And, and one of them said, Dr. Johnson, I was a third year med student. You know that, right? <laughs> <laughs> Already into the, let me tell you what it was like thing. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you what it was like when we had our first ICU patient in the biocontainment unit and it, it, how many intensivists and ID doctors it took to decide how to manage that person. Kelly, you mean when we made the transition from 20 doctors for one patient to one patient for, tw- or for 20 patients for one doctor? Yep. yep, the ratio, the rounding. You've never seen table rounding like this. All the intensivists, all the ID doctors, and a handful of other people, but I never really understood how they ended up in the room trying to be like, so what should we use for sedation? We know nothing about this. <laughs> Are there differences we should really care about? That's like three hours of rounding for like the simplest decisions that, you know, the day before we would have been like, nah, just do that. And we'll figure out if it doesn't work. Like, I am, I am getting very wary of frustrated doctors because one of them actually hit me in the face yesterday with a bag of saline. And it turns out that's assault. Yeah. <laughs> my 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 only clinical joke, and of course, <laughs> that really happened. It might have. <laughs> my, my one medical dad joke. You're welcome to it. Uh, thanks for that, Richard. That we needed that laugh before we sign off. Definitely, there is humor in the pandemic. We just have to find it, and we have to cherish it and share it with each other. I think that's one of the only ways to get through. Yeah, I think Dan said something earlier in an email about, you know, we cope with humor. So, you know, even though you may know medical professionals out there and they're all smiles, 
check on them because they're probably not okay. And they could use that shoulder. So keep that in mind as the pandemic continues. I want to thank Priya, Kelly, Dan, and Richard for joining us today. It was awesome to have you guys on. And I hope our listeners enjoy hearing your stories and where things are at and where we think they're going. Yes. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you, guys. This is really great hanging out with with all of you for the past uh, hour plus. Yes. And for all of our listeners out there, uh, catch us next time on Dirty Drinks. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. If you enjoyed this content, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to be a part of the conversation by following us at Dirty underscore Drinks on Twitter. If you would like to share your story, reach out to us through Twitter to become a guest on future episodes. We would love to meet you. Have a great week and make sure to get your fill of dirty drinks.